Um, it is um, my privilege to be able to introduce our guest speaker to you today, um, Dr. Bill Kuhn. So Bill, if you wanna make your way up here, I got to meet Bill at um, Crown College, which is our denominations college up in St. Boniface, I can even say it, St. Bonifacius. Did I get it? Yeah, come all the way over. I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell them things about you, but you can come all the way up over here. Um, Bill and I met at, uh, we got to do some work together at the college there for a little bit. He is vice president of student development. He's also the campus chaplain. He oversees several ministries, weekly chapel, discipleship ministry, local global outreach programs, and he interacts daily with um, many of the more than 500 kids who are on campus there. He teaches preaching, discipleship, spiritual development, leadership at the college. He's got degrees. He's a doctor, so like it's, you know, you fit right in in this place, in this town, so we, we love you for that. And uh, before he was at the college, he was a pastor of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is our denomination, for over 14 years. And so he gets the opportunity to speak at different camps and churches uh, around our state and within our denomination, and it's a real treat for us to be able to have him here. So Bill, I'm really grateful that you're here to speak to us. Would you guys welcome Dr. Bill Coon to our stage? Thanks, brother, it's good to see you. Appreciate you being here. Can we just uh, get a confirmation? How long is that food available? Because that's gonna determine how much time I have, I think. I mean, this, this is a dedicated bunch. I got out of the vehicle you know, 30 minutes ago and I thought, there's nobody gonna be inside the sanctuary. They're all gonna be outside eating. So I'm just glad that you're here. That's pretty exciting, actually. Hey, I, you know, I do teach preaching class and one of the things you tell people Uh, when you teach a speech class or preaching class is you let them know that you should not apologize at the beginning of your message for any, you know, sickness or any deficiency or things that might interrupt your presentation. Are you familiar with that kind of statement, right? You don't apologize at the beginning. So I'm not going to apologize now for what I'm about to say, but I am going to apologize for the last time I was here. So this is a little insider information. You don't know this. So about three years ago, the only other time I've been at this uh, church, three years ago, I arrived at the hotel, got out of the hotel, walked in, said, I'm going to look over my notes before I go to the church to discover that I had left my notes and my Bible at home. So I ran down to the front desk, grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and scribbled out from memory the, the little bit I could recall from my notes, and I preached that weekend using your Bible from your pew right over here from the seat. And uh, yeah, I got through it. I survived. You survived. And I got an invitation back. I, you know, by the way, I'll Venmo you that money later. So just so you know. All right. Hey, I'm excited, though, that we get the chance to be together and Uh, get an opportunity to look into God's word together as a group. And I'm just gonna invite you now to take a moment to close your eyes, kind of come into this space where we have the privilege of meeting with God and he meets with us. Would you bow with me as we pray and begin? Father, we are so grateful uh, today for the blessings that are right here in this moment, for barbecue food that just smells so good and surely tastes good for worship that's alive and energized by your spirit and for the privilege of your word open before us to reflect on things that matter. And in a world where much of it seems 
transitory, we get to look at something eternal. And so we're grateful for that. Would you meet us and may your spirit speak through your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you and I live in a world of dizzying array of options. You know this because you've turned on the television and you've turned on Netflix and you realize that on Netflix in 2020, there were 3,700 plus programs you could select from in Netflix. How many of you have Netflix? Let's just do that, okay? How many of you have a second streaming service? Not just Netflix, you have something else. How many of you have three streaming services at home? Yeah, some of you, some of you have four. We're going for four, five, six, I mean, right? So when I grew up, it took longer to walk up to the television to choose a channel than it did to choose a channel, right? Because I had a little dial and there were only three options, right? Now there are 3,700 plus options just on Netflix. But it's not just the television. You've got to shop for the clothes you wear and the thing, right? And so you go on Amazon. And did you know that on Amazon, there are 50,000 men's shoes available on Amazon? That's, you could wear a different pair of shoes every day of your life, gentlemen, for two lives and still not get through all of Amazon's shoes. There are 70,000 pairs of socks on Amazon. And if all that shopping made you tired, that's okay, because there are 758 queen-size mattresses available for sale on Amazon. It's just all kinds of choices that we face. Just walk into a coffee shop and look at the menu. How does anyone select coffee? And then to think that we put ice in our coffee. What is going on there? Think of all the options that you and I face every single day, just doing life. Now what psychologists have found in the last decade is that many people in the United States are experiencing decision fatigue that is paralyzing their soul. They're having harder and harder time actually making choices. Younger generations who arrive, for example, at Crown College where I work are having a difficult time deciding what major to choose. They're having a difficult time with big decisions because of all the many small decisions they face every single day. And so students don't know what they want. We live in a genie world where we basically have access to all that we want and yet People don't know what they want. There's a solution for that. In 2012, born out of California, a new discipline within psychology called wantology. Have you heard of wantology? It's a discipline that studies what people want and then helps people find what they want. So here's how it works for a fee. You can go sit down with a ontologist who will tell you what you want. And I hope that in that moment, they decide that what I want is my feedback. There is such a thing as 
ontologist. Because we have such a hard time making a decision. We have this dual kind of thing that happens, right? Where we kind of want this and we kind of want that. We have a hard time deciding. There was a group of people in Jesus' day that had a hard time deciding. They were in desperate need of a wantologist, but none existed in Jesus' day. And this group of people that desperately needed a wantologist to know what they want is probably not the group that you're thinking they are. The group that needed a wantologist is the disciples, the apostles, the 11 apostles particularly who survived after Christ's death and resurrection. If you have the scriptures, you can either turn or tap or however you access the word of God today. If you would do that with me and go to Matthew chapter 28, I wanna spend a few moments there. Now, my guess is, is that many of you, if you've been around church a number of years, you've encountered some of these verses, particularly at the very end of the chapter. And maybe you've encountered some of the verses at the beginning of the chapter, which talks about the fact that Jesus Christ came back to life. Out of the grave, he came. But there's a couple little verses tucked in there that is just so easy for us to pass over and miss that I think answers some questions for us today. And I think for you as a church in Rochester, you need to work through this so that you can become a kind of church where people can show up with their questions. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Jesus had told them after the resurrection, there was an appearance of Jesus. He said, go to Galilee, hang out there for a little bit. I'm gonna show up, we're gonna have a conversation. They do that, they go to Galilee. Now he's gathered them together, and here's what it says. Verse 17, when they saw him, that is when they saw Jesus, the king, back from the grave, they did what we would all do in that moment. It says they worshiped him, but some doubted. See that? What? Isn't that, it's just kind of an absurd verse, isn't it? When you think of it just at face value. Wait a minute. He is back from the grave. His heart is pumping. He's alive. They can touch him. He's eating with them. And in that moment, they're singing, this is amazing grace. And they're having their moment of worship. But in that context of worship, some of them were doubting. They were thinking twice. They were wondering what decisions they were going to have to face. They needed a wantologist to figure out, like, what, what does all this mean? We have spent three years in the greatest education ever available to humanity. The one that we followed died, and in that moment... We scattered. In fact, the night before Jesus was to die, these same apostles fell asleep in a prayer meeting. The one who was supposed to be their leader 
He denied he even knew Jesus. And now when Jesus is alive from the grave and they're sitting with him, some of them doubted. It strikes me, having been along the ride with churches for many decades now, that many churches would never allow someone to openly admit their doubt in their sanctuary. We wanna welcome you to come and worship Christ, but let's just say it now, because we hardly ever say it, that it is legitimate for people to worship Christ and simultaneously doubt. Some of them doubted. Now, obviously for us to know that, it's written in the text, and for Matthew to know that, they must have talked about it, right? They're singing the hallelujah chorus with Jesus, they walk away from that context, and someone had the nerve to say, hey, by the way, (laughs) back there when we were worshiping and everything, the band was awesome, but I'm just not sure. What were they doubting, by the way? The text doesn't say what they were doubting. They might have been, I don't know, could they have been doubting Christ? I mean, he's right there in their midst, alive from the grave. Were they doubting him? Is there any chance that they might have been doubting themselves? I mean, after all, they did scatter and deny him and fell asleep on him. Even after Pentecost, after the filling of the Spirit, over in Acts chapter four, it still says about these same people that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Surely Jesus didn't expect much from them, did he? They're doubting, they're unschooled, They're ordinary. What did Jesus expect to do with that group of people? Which brings me to a question. What does Jesus expect to do through us? Do you have doubts? Is Christ's community a church where people can express their doubts? Are unschooled, ordinary people allowed in church? Can worship and doubt coexist? What does Jesus really expect from me? You and I live in a context where there is a conspiracy campaign of a message that says this, just being you is not enough. Just being you is not enough. You say, well, how do you know that? Because in the United States, we spend $1.2 trillion in advertisement to convince you that who you are and what you have is not enough. You need more. (laughs) You gotta have more. It's not good enough to just be you. 
fact, here's the messages that we often shape our identity. And no wonder we doubt. Because for some, our identity is shaped by this statement. I am what I do. I am what I do. The money that I make, the titles, the awards, the athletic stats, the talent show behavior. And the behavior defines me. And my identity is only as good as my last performance. So I doubt myself. Because my last performance wasn't that great. In fact, my last performance, I forgot my notes. Or maybe the message is, I am who others say I am. In fact, opinion defines me. And my identity is only as good as my last compliment. Or maybe I am who God says I am. And God defines me and my identity is as good as God's word. And here we are in this moment in Galilee with the disciples at their worship service gathering around Jesus back from the grave and they're worshiping him and some are doubting. Maybe they're doubting themselves. What could Jesus possibly want with this ragamuffin group of people? Why not cast them off? He knows probably, right, that they're doubting. Cast them off, gather the angels, and get the work done, Jesus. I don't need the apostles. I don't need Christ Community Church. I can do it myself. And yet watch what happens in the passage. Verse 18 where does Jesus get confidence with this ragamuffin group of people? Where does he get confidence around Christ Community Church? Here's the confidence. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If the previous verse is ridiculous and absurd that worship and doubt coexist, this verse is either disturbing or comforting that there is actually someone, somewhere in the universe who has all authority. Now, when I read this, this verse, the first thing I think is, great, Jesus, I get it. In heaven, you have all authority. Of course you do. You sit on your throne, you've got your angels, you got those uh, elders gathered around the throne. They're singing your praise. Angels singing 24-7. I get it, Jesus. All authority in heaven is yours. Awesome. Love it. It's the line that says he has all authority on earth that causes me to question. Wait, wait a minute. Have you looked at the news? Are you kidding me? You want to tell me that Jesus has all authority on earth? That's madness. Or is it? Years ago, Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch statesman and theologian, 100 years ago, he said this about our experience. 
He really wanted to, all of God's people to believe that God is involved in the daily affairs of humanity, the daily affairs. And so he wrote this, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every inch of human existence, Christ says, that's mine. Every inch of the entire universe, Jesus says, that is mine. I have authority over that. The solar system in the Milky Way galaxy, Jesus says, that's mine. How about the purple mountains and the mighty Mississippi River to the bizarre creatures at the bottom of the ocean, the soaring birds of the air, the monkeys in the mountaintops, the ants underground, ants who, by the way, collectively outweigh all the humans on the planet. If they only knew they could take over. Jesus says, that's all mine. The Amazon riverbed to every crevice in the Grand Canyon to the frigid tundra of Mongolia, Jesus says, that's mine. The tyrant ruler, the swelling population of China, the hungry in Africa, the Syrian refugees, the lonely in Rochester, Minnesota, Jesus says, that's mine. He has authority over all the institutions, the school systems, the three branches of the U.S. government, the IRS. Well, maybe not. Maybe there's a boundary there. No, IRS. Jesus says, mine. Corporate America, Wall Street, White House, Pentagon, Capitol, churches, and not just church buildings, the people in the churches, the ups and downs, the celebrations, the joys, the heartaches, the disappointments, the strains, the successes. Jesus has authority over all of that. The unseen realities, of course, the angels and the thrones and creatures in heavens, to the four corners of the earth and beyond, to infinity and beyond. Where do you think that came from? Jesus has authority over that. Oh, by the way, COVID-19, the test, the masks, the social distancing, the political realities, Christians, don't lose your mind over those things. Don't freak out. I know it's serious. We need to be alert. But he has authority. And we all need reminding that God is in control. We need to hear that life's mishaps and tragedies are not without a reason. And it's not a reason to bail on God. It's hard. But sovereignty means that there is purpose in it. That when those things unfold, of course it's difficult and challenging. But the God of the universe has authority. And because of that, there's meaning. One of the challenges for me in my life on a regular basis is to stand and face every day and believe this fact that God 
is at work. John chapter five, Jesus says, my father is always at work. And to stand and face every day believing that God is at work, that God is up to something because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Where does Jesus get confidence that he actually can use people who doubt? These apostles who need a wantologist to help them sort out what they want. His confidence is in the fact that he has all authority. So the fact that he has all authority now leads into verse 19 and 20. This is where we are familiar with the text. Verse 19, therefore, because I have all authority, I know that you doubt, but that's okay. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, since I have authority, since nothing can stop me, everywhere you go as a Christian, Jesus says, I'm already there with authority, right? He's not sending us anywhere where he doesn't already rule. Therefore, go. Make disciples. So now put it all together through that text. It's It is absurd to think that Jesus took the doubters and put them in charge of the faith. Broken, hurting, uncertain, confused people and said, I will make you an instrument that I can use to change the world. So go make disciples, make learners, teach people to obey. This particular passage is so familiar, sometimes we miss all of the nuance of it. Let me see if I can help us. The main verb in verses 19 and 20 is make disciples. All those other words are modifying words. There's only one main verb, make disciples. Therefore, make disciples. What does that mean? It means to make learners. It was an old word. It it meant to have an apprentice. And you'd study the apprentice, the life of the apprentice, not just what the apprentice did, but you studied the life of the apprentice so much that you began to look and act and behave and talk like the, the master. You were a disciple, a learner, And in the New Testament, the most frequent word used for Christ followers is the word disciple. It is used 269 times in the New Testament for people who follow Jesus. Our responsibility, even as worshipers who doubt, is to move from the authority of Christ out into the far reaches of the world and let them know there is a master that they should be following that they, should, they could become learners of Christ. 
And what do we do to become learners? Well, we go, we baptize, and we teach. The going, the baptizing, and the teaching explain what it means to make disciples. And then the passage concludes with this promise, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm with you always. Who is with us? The God of verse 18, right? The one who says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that's the one that's with us, which is interesting because if you know the book of Matthew, it opens with the announcement of Emmanuel, God with us. And the book of Matthew closes with the promise that he will forever be with us. Robert Coleman, I think, captured the weight, the gravitas of the Great Commission, Jesus' mission, his purpose for his people. When he wrote this, Robert Coleman said this, Unless we are living our lives on the wavelength of the Great Commission, our lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. Unless we are living our lives on the wavelength of the Great Commission, our lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. No one wants to be irrelevant in the world. How do we become relevant in our world? Well, we partner up with what God is doing because he's always at work. And when we partner up with him, guess what? We're doing things that have eternal significance. We're making a difference. And to that extent, we're involved in the co-mission. Co-mission of Christ. We are partnering with the God of the universe who has all authority as we go and make disciples. And I'm with you always as you go do that. So what kind of God uses doubters to proclaim the faith? What kind of God calls the broken and the fearful and the insecure people into eternal partnership with himself to change the world. This kind of God. A God who uses both the stars and the candles to light his world. God uses both the stars and the candles to light his world. So it doesn't matter the size of your flame, what skill set you have, or the lack of skills that you have. You have a portion of the world that God wants you to light. You say, well, you don't know, you don't know me. You know, you you're a pastor guy and you've got a title, that, reverend, or you, you've, you, you're different than me. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know this verse. I know the doubts. I know the brokenness. 
I had someone come to me years ago and said, you know what, appreciate your sermon today, but you'll never understand us because you obviously grew up in a very strong Christian home. I said, no. I grew up in a very violent, alcoholic home where the first time I went to the church, my mom said to me, don't you ever do that again. So I know it. So the God of the universe uses the stars and the candles to light his world. So here's my challenge to you. Christ Community Church, wake the doubters. We have a mission for them. Would you be okay if in this community the invitation went out and said, we are calling all those who doubt to come to our place and worship Christ. Bring your doubts. You can be vulnerable here because the God of the universe has a mission for you. He wants you to light his world. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. We are so thankful that you do not discard broken people. There's a message there for us that when we doubt or when we feel insecure or inadequate or when we hear the messages that being you is just not enough, that you love us and care for us, that you restore us and heal us and commission us. We're grateful for that. But God, there's also a message for those outside these walls who maybe have never heard that there is a God who loves them, who has a purpose for them. And so God, would you make us people of light that wherever we go, we might be able to say yes to you and believe that you are always up to something. Encourage us to be people of faith, to believe that Jesus has all authority in every place in which we walk, and to be people of hope, even when it's hard, even when it seems like there's mostly darkness around us, may we be people of hope. Would you bless us now? We leave this, the safety and warmth of this space and we go out to be light. So encourage us, strengthen us, give us stamina for this week in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. God bless you, be blessed and be a blessing.